Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. God's word for us today. Rod um, has recently become a regular attender here, and so we're sure glad to have him um, and his wife with us. And uh, if you don't know what uh, Rod is currently doing, he is the head of the Theological Education Initiative. And it's just a great resource for local ministry leaders who maybe don't have access to seminary training or can afford it. Um, this is a great outlet for them to be able to do that. So we're so glad to have Rod with us. We're glad for the work you're doing, and we're looking forward to having you with us. Thank you. I'm honored to uh, be here. I will say that uh, through the 30 years that I've been relating um, to the church here, it's the first time that I have spoken on the same day that my wife and I are interviewing for membership. So feels a bit intimidating, and I'm not sure if Pastor Ed intended anything by that or not. We've been in a series, as you know, related to engaging culture. And when Pastor Ed said that uh, he was going to be out and asked if I might want to join in, I knew fairly quickly what I thought might make a contribution to our conversation today. I don't think I have to tell you that um, it's not... Uh, surprising that in our culture today, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish scriptures or what we identify as that first half uh, of the, the book prior to Jesus can be an unwelcome hurdle to engaging a culture, that the mindset towards the Old Testament can be quite negative and that many find it repulsive and oppressive and regressive. And I I had this experience uh, not long ago after I was concluding uh, one of my um, three-times-a-week basketball games. I'll let you catch your breath for a moment on that, but I play with uh, a group of guys from the age of 20 to 71, and typically two or three times a week. We we do uh, run slow, and um, other than a wicked hook shot, uh, I don't play very well, but... It is uh, a game that I absolutely love, and I actually play with uh, three guys who are actually older than I am. One of them tops at about uh, 62, and another one at 65, and, and another one just turned 71. So it's, it's an ugly experience, but we have a good time, and on this particular day, I invited uh, Brad and Jerry, not their real names, to uh, join me for a cup of coffee over at Panera Bread. And as we nursed our sore muscles and drank our coffee and ate our bagels, the subject kind of turned to what we all did, and either previously in in our vocational life, and for me, what I was still yet about and doing, and the conversation began to turn towards the idea that ended with Brad saying to the group of us, said, well, you know, Rod, it's you have to admit it's really hard to reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. And uh, it's a subject that I have cared about and something that I have studied, and so I sort of launched on him pretty quickly with a kind of, well, I don't think you're reading it right sort of conversation. And... um, And later I want to talk about what I would probably do differently with greater levels of awareness than I did on that day. But before uh, we talk about that and bring some observations from it, I want to talk a little bit about, about that idea and the ways in which I want to encourage us today 
to not allow that perception, not that you would, I want to affirm and remind us, but for others of us to sort of empower us and coach us through how I don't think that it, it helps for people to remain with that kind of perspective without it being confronted, without us saying something, something quite different. We find an example of Jesus doing that in the ways that we've been doing in the series in the book of Luke chapter 24 where the resurrection has taken place and just after uh, we see that the disciples are, uh, a couple of the disciples, they're, they're they're confused about what's happened in Jerusalem that day and two of them are taking the road to Emmaus, about a seven mile journey out of uh, Jerusalem and up to the town of Emmaus and they are walking along, one of them named Cleopas, we read about in the scriptures, is as they're discussing, uh, finds a, a gentleman who joins them, who, who later in the evening, they actually, their eyes are open, they realize that it's actually Jesus who has been walking with them. And what Jesus does with them to help them in the midst of their confusion about what the day's events have meant, what the experiences of the crucifixion of their their hoped-for one, their Messiah, and then the report of the resurrection. Jesus comes alongside them, and what we'll see in these passages of Scripture in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, is we see that Jesus says to them, let me show you the Old Testament. Let me show you your Scriptures. Let me explain to you the Hebrew Bible and Jesus by example to us today I think says to them you're not reading it right let me open you up to a different perspective in verse 25 Jesus whom they did not yet know was him said how foolish you are and slow hearted to believe all that the prophets have spoken Did not the Messiah, Christ, have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all of what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He said to them, you know what? If you read the Old Testament right, if you read the First Testament, if you read your Hebrew Bible, you'll come to an awareness about some things that you may not have seen before. A first-time reading of the text or reading the text wrong or not reading the text in an appropriate way actually might find you more confused than you have to be. But, but when your eyes are opened, and as he explained it to them, they began to be amazed that there were some very rich promises, some very explicit expressions about hope for the future that were found in the Bible that, that would help to explain the experiences that they were currently facing. Jesus, on his walk to Emmaus, encountered these surprised skeptics by showing them the Old Testament's relevance. And I think, too, that the relevance of the First Testament may help skeptics embrace what Jesus completed. I think that as as we begin to look for opportunities to share with them and defend the faith and talk with them about the ways in which 
the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, that we can help to engage our culture in reconsidering the claims of Jesus. So in our time left today, I'd like to do these two a few things. One is, I'd like to glance back at some Old Testament texts and see if I couldn't help to show its relevance in the kind of conversation and questions that we might ask. Secondly, I'd like to name some of the tools that that you might be quite familiar with already, but just to kind of call them out to say that these are some Bible interpretation tools that help us to come to these conclusions. And then I'd like to reflect with you a bit about what I wish I had done differently with Brad and Jerry in my conversation in retrospect. And then finally is some just some resources that uh, some of you might like to consider further that you would find helpful. So let's begin, if we could, in the book of Job. Perhaps considered the first book of the Bible by, by many. It's, it's, it's certainly chronologically so. And in this book, I think it confronts a common thought right up front, which is that the Old Testament represses women. That, um, that women don't have a chance. But there's a surprising, surprising piece that I, I'd invite you to look at on the screen with me where it says of Job after he has suffered and after there's been this arguing back and forth uh, that's happened and ultimately God doesn't condemn him for his questions but instead embraces his, his, his responses, uh, appreciates the way he set in the complexity of the problem of evil while at the same time coming against his friends who have been too simplistic, it says that God restored to him what had been lost and that he was blessed abundantly beyond what he had expected. And then there's this surprising passage that, that can, can sort of surprise them. And it says, just before what we're reading here, it says that, that he had the most beautiful daughters in all the land. That kind of sounds like like me as a grandparent talking to you about my almost two-year-old grandson Silas, the most the most beautiful, you know, it's that it's that freedom of expression of talking about how wonderful they are. And so the daughters who are beautiful in all the land, and it says something that doesn't quite fit with what we know of the patriarchy backdrop of the Old Testament, and their father granted the daughters an inheritance along with their brothers. This is a surprising insight about God's heart that those of us who understand the creation story and God's heart for men and women and being created equal are not surprised, but I think for the culture, it could be a shock to see that the inheritance in that day went to the wives as well. Uh, You may have done your morning devotions uh, already today in Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14, where we read such a comforting passage. It, it's sort of comparable to Psalm 23, tongue-in-cheek. When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife, bring her into your home, and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. And after she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her, and you could be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you are not pleased with her, then let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. Did any of you include that in your marriage vows back when you got married? 
some years ago. This Deuteronomy 21 passage is talking to those about um, the men who are dealing with the spoils of war in which they have now gained what in that day would have been considered a part of their property. Now, we, we have to admit that this arrests our sensibilities in Western civilization. But in light of the barbaric world in which this is being written, this is a monumental, redemptive move in terms of what they would have experienced. And there's an expression that's not related anywhere in the um, Sumerian or Egyptian or Assyrian law codes in which you could do with the spoils of war, including women, who in most of those cultures are not even considered like persons, that this is an amazing passage of scripture that comes alongside as, as well as much of the uh, other law codes of the Jewish community. In order to, to see, did you, did, are you reading it right? Do you see it right? Are you, are you seeing the rest of what's happening in the backdrop of that kind of world that existed around them? After she has lived in your house, Give her space to mourn what's been lost for a full month. And if you decide that this is not someone that you want to be a part of your community or take her as your wife, then then don't sell her, don't treat her badly. Let her spend some time mourning and then find a way to transition her into the rest of of the community so that so that life can be maintained. What I'm suggesting here is that in light of the uh, thick book that I, I could have brought today that, that actually, you know, is translated into English about all of that kinds of ways that they dealt with the law code, you would see how truly that kind of world is repressive and regressive and oppressive towards women and barbaric in many ways and multiple expressions of the kind of mutilations that could be done. But instead, in this kind of passage, what we see is is a monumental move forward, a giant step towards the kind of heart that God intended from the beginning, but embedded within a kind of world that we can never imagine. And I think that our culture would be helped by being able to say to them in so many words, I don't think you're reading it right. I don't, I don't think you're seeing it in light of the ways in which if, if, if you are in slavery in that day, you want to be a slave in Israel because at least two things would happen. One is you, if they're following um, the, the commands of the day, one is you get a day off every week. That's unheard of. And secondly, every so many years, you could actually become a free person at the same time. And though we're counting on Jesus and the the writings of Paul to be able to give us further insight about what else we would like to see done, we see at the heart of this that God is good, that he values and loves and wants a better world for women. I think people also believe the Old Testament God is angry, really, really angry. And of course, one of the things that skeptics love to turn to is found in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. 2 Kings 2, 23 through 25. And this is essentially known 
as the uh, passage about bears and bald heads. Elisha is is dealing with the death of Elijah, his mentor. He's uh, walking outside of the city, a group of uh, what the skeptics call boys then sort of attack him, and two bears come out of the woods. And depending on which website you're reading, but the skeptics say that these two bears killed these boys. And what kind of a god kills boys for teasing an old man? This is the kind of the way that is typically presented. But when you read the text and when you dig a little deeper, I think there are some insights that come to us that help us to understand some things that we might have missed otherwise. First of all, is that despite uh, what I've used here is the um, King James Version, is that it, it presents these as, as children. Little children is the, is the translation. I think that's a, a very unfortunate translation. The, the, the other translations like the NIV at least make this move to talk about them as youths. And when you look at the original language and the three different descriptions that are used, you begin to compare it with other passages of scriptures, you realize these are at least teenage boys, if not young men. And what they're making fun of is someone crying after a funeral. So, a, 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 um, though we don't know with 100 degree certainty, there, there's a good interpretation that can be considered that is that the reason that Elisha is bald is because he has shaved his head in mourning over Elijah. So this is comparable to the fact that these, these young men are making fun of someone crying after a funeral. A deeper reading of the text actually realizes that, that, that the author names 42 of them that the bears took on. And you also realize that, that, so that's more like a mob, and the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, actually suggests that they were throwing stones, which in that day actually led towards death. Now, Elisha, as a prophet, does a lot of good in the world. And they're coming against him, and the scripture doesn't say that the bears killed the small boys. They were acting small, but it actually says that it tore them or mauled them or at least defended Elisha. There's a big difference from reading a skeptic website that says the God of the Old Testament kills boys with bears. When you read the text right, you could find reasonable explanations that most of us would agree and wish that Klaus von Stauffenberg of the resistance movement would have been successful if he had been successful in the assassination of Adolf Hitler and the removal of the Nazi party in the summer of 1944, that that would have been a good thing, that some thousands of deaths may have been spared. Some of you remember this as Tom Cruise uh, played that character in the 2008 movie Valkyrie. In other words, most of us agree, and I think that Brad and Jerry would have to admit that it's justifiable to maul some mobs in order to save the life of Elisha, who does such good prior to this passage and certainly after it as well. Now we could go on. The sacrifice of Isaac. What does it mean to, to, to raise a knife like Abraham that God asked 
Abraham to sacrifice his son. This doesn't make sense to us unless you lived in a world in which it was common to try to satisfy the gods and that it would have been a more than occasional occasion in which a well-meaning, intentioned individual like the Canaanites and the kind of world that um, Abraham grew up in, that if you were trying to satisfy the gods through a performance mentality, that you would give them back a crop, or you would give them back a portion of your goats, or you would give the gods a portion of this and that. And at some point, if you're trying to satisfy their anger, you might even consider giving up a child that you loved. The surprise in the backdrop of of this First Testament is that God provides something. The object lesson makes sense to Abraham. What surprises the reader is not that Abraham is is wanting to satisfy an angry God or that God even uses this, this object lesson as a way to teach him, but, that, but this is a different kind of God. This is unlike any other God. This is an unknown God to that day. And it's the kind of God who steps in and says, I'll provide and I'll make provision. And I'm not angry. In fact, just the opposite. I want a relationship. An eye for an eye is a monumental step forward in light of a prevalent, barbaric world of retaliation. The lex talionis, as we call it in our law code, is a step forward that begins to even out, and Jesus then teaches us to go beyond it. What we've seen is is that when we read it right, the First Testament actually begins to represent the God of the New Testament, that they are the same God, and that the there's a deep sense of, of respect for the kinds of things that we would like to value and that the heart of God can be known if we help our culture to read it right. So the hurdle of the Old Testament seemingly regressive posture can be countered through an awareness of how redemptive its message is in light of the surrounding cultural backdrop. So let me just name a few things that, that we've done in the work that uh, we just looked at. First of all, is to understand that the Hebrew language is limited and lacks access to abstract ideas. It might surprise us to know that the Hebrew language has about 3,000 words, where in the English language, we have access to about 3 million words. So think about trying to describe some abstract ideas to help us understand the heart of God In order to do that, the authors have a limited access to words. This is why we find things like long-nosed and stiff-necked to represent things like lying and stubbornness. So the Hebrew language, the First Testament, is having to encounter, and, and, and so therefore there's a work of interpretation that has to be done. A part of this has to help us to understand what God strongly causes and God weakly causes meaning what God causes in ways that he's directly involved and it's up to the interpreter to realize the things that he's, he's coming alongside and redemptively bringing good out of it. Like Romans 8.28 says, those kinds of concepts are not as relevant in those Hebrew scriptures. Also, we note that what is described is not necessarily what is prescribed. And so often this is, this is what's crazy-making when we encounter our skeptical friends who are talking about, well, the Bible says, and you're like, well, it describes something that happens, but that doesn't mean that it's endorsing it. 
the backdrop of the Old Testament is not necessarily the ethic of the Old Testament. And much of that is explained within Jesus and the New. And certainly, as we've already noted, it's progressive, not regressive, in light of the cultural backdrop. Discontinuity, continuity, what, 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 what Acts 15 and the other passages stopped, those are very informative to us, but also what was affirmed through the rest of the New Testament what God continued. These are the kinds of things that, that we can help to explain to our friends and family over Thanksgiving that may have this problem with his Hebrew Bibles. Now, here's what I wish I had done differently in my conversation with Brad that I didn't do. I wish that, first of all, when he said, you have to understand, Rod, you have to agree, you have to admit that the God of the Old Testament is hard to reconcile with the God of the New Testament. I wish, in retrospect, with greater levels of awareness, that I had just said, isn't the God of the New Testament amazing? I wish I had just camped on and talked with him and heard from him about, about who Jesus is. So, like Pastor Ed has been reminding us these last few weeks that it should point to Jesus. And when we embrace Jesus, when you get Jesus and when you embrace the resurrection that, of what his claims are and how they're true, things begin to make sense to us in new ways to be able to say, yeah, I think I can wrestle with this First Testament in light of Jesus. Secondly, I wish that I had asked more questions. I wish I instead, when he made that statement, I had said, well, how did you come to that conclusion, Brad? Can you explain further or tell me more? So always a posture of listening is better than the one that I had. And then I wish I had transitioned with the question that asked, hey, Brad, hey, Jerry, would you guys be open to another perspective? And if they nodded in agreement, (laughs) then I would have launched in the ways that I had And with the posture that I think I was able to model. And in so many words, to be able to say to them in your own way, I don't think you're reading it right. If uh, you find that this might be helpful as you engage your culture, I'd like to just note these three resources that I have found helpful. The first one is... um, an individual who engages college students. And so his writing is quite readable and he summarizes a lot of other complex text. One, it's called God Behaving Badly by David Lamb. He has followed it up with one called Prostitutes and Polygamists, Love Old Testament Style. And each of these give us insights and awareness, light of the culture, that I think you might find helpful. Secondly, as a book, that really emphasizes the asking of questions and hearing from people before we give our defense. And it's a book by Randy Newman called Questioning Evangelism. And uh, the, he actually plays out various conversations in real time that we can have to hear from people before we, before we begin to give our answers. And then finally, the ministry that uh, I have the privilege of leading that was mentioned earlier by Troy. In January, we have uh, Lois Verberg coming with us uh, to be with us again uh, in the community. And, and she really deals a lot with the Second Temple period and helping us understand the Hebrew Bible. Some of you may remember Ray Vanderlaan. Uh, she was a student of his uh, with Focus on the Family some years ago, and she's continued his work. And specifically, her recent book, Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus, can be helpful. As we close today, I'd just simply like to note with you this 
sort of uh, reminder or affirmation, uh, perhaps a bit of a, if I may, an admonishment suggestion that I think is important in light of what we talked about today. That the Hebrew Bible can be quite complicated and it can seem quite regressive, quite oppressive, without some explanation, without engaging some tools that we've talked about today. But I want to say to you that the culture that we're engaging is not just out there. It's not just on the basketball court or at Panera Bread or at Thanksgiving with our adults' families. It's with our youth and teenagers that are among us. Our closest skeptics walk around us in church on Sunday. When I was about 11 years old, my dad, along with my brothers, my wife, my uh, mother was missing that day, and he was reading from the Bible in the First Testament, and I stopped him, interrupted him in front of my three brothers, and, uh, and said to him, so, um, what is circumcision anyway? Yeah, and so my brothers took off in an uproarious laughter, and my dad began to sort of tuck his head, and he mumbled something about what we do with cows and pigs, and then he said, well, ask your mother. And I continued through the course of my teenage years to ask the kinds of questions like that one and others like the one we've talked about today because I thought, you say the Bible is true and you tell me that every part of it is inspired, even without error. And yet, most of the response that I received, again, not, it's not true of this church. I know your value and I know the giftings. But, but it was my experience among my youth leaders and my father that most of the answers were, we believe in believing. And I think that in my case, rather than rejecting them, I went all the way through a master's level consideration and all the way through a doctorate and a continued education in trying to understand the complexity of these. So the First Testament may follow Jesus and the New Testament in our apologetic, but we need to be aware of it, my friends, as we're reading our Bible stories to our grandchildren, that the ways in which they come across in light of a growing conscience become quite regressive and quite oppressive unless we find ourselves understanding that just the opposite is true. That there are some things that are at work and the God of the New Testament is the same God as the God of the Old Testament. And though there's complexities, they can be wrestled with. There are reasonable explanations. There's a reasonable degree of confidence that we can have to find grace and Jesus in the Old Testament. And may we take that and engage our culture both outside and in with that message. May I pray for you and so Lord thank you for the opportunity that we have to be about 
asking questions, pointing to the amazing God of the New Testament, and then also confronting what may be confusing for those outside and inside the church to help them see how you're revealing yourself throughout the whole Bible that we love. So Lord, guide us and direct us as we engage our culture. In Christ's name, amen.